I'm Evan Rowland. And I'm Hannah Schaefer. Welcome to Design Doc. Dactylomancy, from the Greek word finger, a divination ritual dating back to ancient Greece, in which a ring is suspended above a table marked with letters, numbers, and symbols from the zodiac. One of the earliest references to dactylomancy can be found in the historical accounts of Ammianus Marcellinus, a Roman soldier and historian responsible for the main historical account of Roman antiquity surviving today. On the practice of dactylomancy, Ammianus wrote, O most honored judges, we constructed from laurel twigs under the dire auspices this unlucky little table, which you see in the likeness of the Delphic tripod, and having duly consecrated it by secret incantations, after many long-continued rehearsals, we at length made it work. Now, the manner of its working, whenever it was consulted about hidden matters, was as follows. It was placed in the middle of a house, purified thoroughly with Arabic perfumes. On it was placed a perfectly round plate made of various metallic substances. Around its outer rim, the written forms of the twenty-four letters of the alphabet were skillfully engraved, separated from one another by carefully measured spaces. Then a man, clad in linen garments, shod also in linen sandals, and having a fillet wound about his head, carrying twigs from a tree of good omen, after propitiating in a set formula the divine power from whom predictions come, having full knowledge of the ceremonial, stood over the tripod as priest, and set swinging a hanging ring, fitted to a very fine linen thread, and consecrated, with mystic arts. This ring, passing over the designated intervals in a series of jumps, and falling upon this and that letter which detained it, made hexameters corresponding with the questions, and completely finished in feet and rhythm like the Pythian verses which we read, or those given out from the oracles of the Brancidae. When we then and there inquired what man will succeed the present emperor, and the ring leapt forward and lightly touched the two syllables, Thay-O, adding the next letter. Then one of those present cried out by the decision of the inevitable fate that Theodorus was meant. And there was no further investigation of the matter, for it was agreed among us that he was the man who was sought. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the physical tools that you use at the table when you are playing a role-playing game, from the mundane to the bizarre. We're going to be talking about the tools that we used in Questlandia 1 and some of the tools that we're considering for Questlandia's sequel. So Evan read that lovely introduction about dactylomancy. Mm-hmm. 
which is maybe a nice little bit of foreshadowing to this idea that we're thinking about some strange tools. A pretty early example of <laughs> divination at the table, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. I could imagine an entire RPG set around that plate with all the letters around its sides. Yeah, that moment in history. There probably is a Ouija board RPG already, don't probably. you think? Probably. I'm sure there's one. I don't I don't know what it is, but I'm sure there's one. Um, we should have researched this I episode. Know, we should. Yeah, geez. <laughs> um, so the first question that we have is, what makes a good toolkit in an RPG? And what purposes can these tools fulfill? And when I say tools, I mean things like, you know, the first ones that come to mind are dice, a rule book or books, uh, a character sheet and pencils, cards. So the, the tools that you associate with role-playing games. So the grandfather of all the role-playing games, D&D, set the early standard for what kind of tools you'd find in an RPG. Is right? it is it D&D? Is that the grandfather? It is. It's not like bunnies and burrows or something? There's um, <laughs> tunnels and trolls that uh, yeah. came right after. <laughs> But D&D's the grandfather. It gave us the funny-sided dice. It gave us, you know, the character sheets, the pencils. And later games started introducing more index cards. <laughs> I'm really, I'm glad that D&D gave us pencils because, you know, without d and I don't I know. know what we'd be writing with. Everybody was writing in blood before then. I think D&D also invented the wheel. Mm -hmm. That's what I read on Wikipedia, at least. Yeah, the Wheel of the Plains, yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what are the uses for these tools at the table? First, the dice are there's a randomizer, just a way to make it so something actually unexpected and surprising can happen. It's really hard for people at the table to throw out something that's actually from left field that nobody saw coming. But dice don't care. They're happy to throw out anything. A die can be a randomizer. It can also be a modifier, you know, taking some sort of existing statistic about your character and contributing that information that you already know to the role. Dice double as, in my opinion, a sort of toy at the table. They give a lot of sensory experience to the game. The clatter of them, the rolling of them. And the anticipation of seeing somebody else holding those dice and knowing they're about to drop them all. So these tools that we use for RPGs, I mean, they can be randomizers, and then like they can also have this tactile element, which is an important part, I think. You got to do something with your hands. <laughs> what? I don't know. <laughs> We should have a, a PG podcast here. Um, so there's, I feel like there's these few levels of design awareness. One is this assumption that your game is just going to have dice because games have dice. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's this other level of like, well, my game can have other tools because a game doesn't have to have dice. It could have cards. And then there's this like next i don't want to say like next level of design but like this additional level of design awareness where you're actually thinking about the tactile experience of the tools you've chosen and how those serve your game or don't i think it's easy to underestimate how important the tactile experience of dice is 
it's easy to look at them and think, oh, you know, this system uses D8s. That's probably the statistically perfect kind of die to use for this rule set. But when you come to a table and you see people lay out their dice and they have special dice that they got at certain parts of their history, they're organizing them by all the D8s together and D10s together, they're color-coded. These are special objects in their own right, and they're part of the whole mysticism of the experience of bringing out these special objects that you don't use for anything other than this. They become symbols. I think about, isn't it Shock? Joshua A.C. Newman's game Shock uses D4s. Yeah. Which are weird. I think of D4s as some of the weirder dice. Like, I don't, I mean, probably ha we have some D4s around because we have, we've just like inherited dice. Those but, have always been the most awkward of dice, but, in but my D, opinion. D4s are really weird. Uh, and I, I don't know, you know, I know Joshua is working on a new edition of Shock. I don't know if he's going to keep using the D4s, but I feel like they have this really nice effect in that game of serving the alien world that's being created mm -hmm. um they're they feel like extremely geometric and they're they you know have these pointed edges um and there's something about holding them that feels like you're holding like an i don't know like an alien gemstone yeah and that's especially great when it fits the theme of the rpg that well that's when a tool can be used to actually build immersion in the system itself so tools can be used then also to build immersion, which is kind of what I was saying about, you know, considering your tools, the tools that you choose as an integral part of your design process instead of an incidental one. This can be done in a lot of ways, and it can be done, it's done naturally by players, sometimes just detached from the system, doing something like, you know, our characters all are taking a break from the adventure, they're sitting around a campfire and eating their dinner, and so we have an actual dinner break at, and discuss some things in character while we're all eating snacks at the table. That's an immersion-building tool, those snacks, <laughs> even if we're not packing them with the RPG. I really appreciate games that are pushing the envelope about what you can bring to the table and incorporate into the rules to give like a unique experience to make it feel like it's to further distinguish this from just chatting at the table with your friends and make it feel like a memorable, I don't know, there, there might be no end to this sentence. <laughs> <laughs> make it feel like a memorable. Make it, yes. <laughs> Imagine, <laughs> reflect. I think that the list goes, could go on and on. I mean, there's Fall of Magic, which uses this beautiful cloth scroll that, you know, both feels like it's an in-world object and is also the, the object around which the entire game is built. And then there's, I mean, if you start to get into LARPs, there are LARPs about cooking where you cook dinner while doing the LARP. I, I think the list could go on and on. But those are just some of the more, you know, the ones that break with this traditional model of like the dice, the cards. So when we started work on the original Questlandia, we wanted to choose tools that would be accessible. We wanted to make sure this could be a game that somebody who's never played an RPG before could step into without having to go searching too far to find all of the kit. Which is funny because looking back now, I feel like we used more tools than were necessary. Yep. <laughs> but whatever. 
yeah, it was also just an accident of how how the actual design went, where sometimes some of these had really big roles in the game, but then that was scaled back, but somehow the tool persisted. So some of those tools were, and I think I'll just list them out, and then we can, you know, talk about them individually, if any of them deserve special mention. So Questlandia uses a deck of standard playing cards with the jokers removed, and that serves as both uh, oracles, you know, to give you information about your world and your characters, and it also escalates the world's troubles as the game goes on. Questlandia uses a handful of six-sided dice in two different colors, one for the protagonist, one for the opposition. It uses tokens in two different colors, and that, I think, is only for the epilogue. Mm -hmm. So, whatever. (laughs) Um, It uses uh, character sheets, and then, you know, whatever reference tables you've decided to print that are in the book that might be important to have at the table. There's a conceptual map of your society, which you're interacting with as the game progresses. There are, you know, the index cards that you're writing your ownership on. And then there is the rule book itself, which is about 100 pages. And there's pencils as a, Damn as those a pencils. tribute to our <laughs> grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So looking back on it, it seems like a lot of stuff. <laughs> it's a pretty crowded table when you're playing Questlandia. And it's a one-shot game. So, which is, it's weird to say that, like, in a campaign game, it somehow justifies having more shit. <laughs> well, it feels bad at the end of Questlandia when you have to... You gotta clean you up gotta, a lot. Yeah, you've gotta throw everything on the table into the trash. <laughs> your dice, your cards, yep. your ghost They've stones. been used. Yeah, incinerate. Mm-hmm. They're no good here anymore. The cards, I feel like are more than any other element of the entire game the most important part, the most important tool. Because not only do they represent the troubles that hit your kingdom, and they represent the characters that you meet in this society, but the cards themselves kind of reflect that, with the face cards being the royalty and powerful members of the society, and the lower numbers representing people with less social capital. And I remember, I don't remember if Questlandia was ever diceless, but I think there was one iteration where it was and where cards were also being used in this like mini game to determine the outcome of a scene. Yeah, that was the case. And I don't remember exactly how it happened, but I just remember a lot of shuffling through cards and it was bad. Yeah. (laughs) There are a lot of bad versions of Questlandia. Well, (laughs) yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, you know, these tokens that ended up sticking around despite only being used in the epilogue, I think were also kind of carried over for an, from an earlier version of the game where rather than escalating your troubles by playing cards, you were escalating them by reaching into a bag and bargaining with ghost stones. Right. I kind of liked that version. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the tokens felt good and the constant bargaining had a a neat feeling even if it wasn't maybe it wasn't perfectly in line with the kind of stories Questlandia was telling and again these are so many versions back that i don't remember a lot of the specifics and i'm probably better off for it (laughs) well you never know when you'll want to reuse an old discarded mechanic that's what happened with norlandia right we had our old character generation for Questlandia, where a character always died in the first scene of the game. 
That didn't end up fitting into Questlandia, but in Norlandia, yeah, kick off with a murder. Whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so our goal was, let's make this an accessible game so anybody can jump in and play it. And we did end up with a lot of parts, and they're easy to find parts, a regular deck of cards, six-sided dice, index cards, but there is a lot of them. And so it just brings up the question of how, how can you make your tools accessible and how can you balance the tools that you want for every other reason, for play aids and immersion, with the goal of making it so anybody can jump into your game. Yeah, I mean, I guess part of that is like the fewer things you have to remember, the better. Like, mm-hmm. I think every time I run Questlandia, I forget the tokens. Yeah. <laughs> and it's fine. The game works without them in a way that it would be hard for it to work without the dice or cards. But like, I do forget them every time. In later games, we actually just combined that with the dice. Since we have two colors of dice anyway, we just said use those as tokens at the end. But we were we were too new, too green. <laughs> Spring chickens. <laughs> so in, in thinking about accessibility of pieces, you had done a little peeking into the history of D&D. Right, because I was thinking... You know, now, if you want a set of D&D dice, you want the D4s and D10s and all, that's easy. You just any store that sells games, and some that don't, will still just have those little sets of all of the polyhedral dice. But when D&D first came out, I don't think that was the case. And so I was researching to see, you know, what was that like to ask people to have these really obscure shaped dice before, before D&D existed? And I found out... Originally, D&D was written as just a D6 game. It was just six-sided dice, easy as pie. And then in a wargaming shop, they found a bin of D20s and were like, wow, look at these weird dice. This feels so mystical. <laughs> and they're, they're like, we got to use these to make the spells feel more arcane when you're rolling this kind of crazy die. So there was a purely immersion-boosting idea. Let's just write the rules so that we can use this weird die and you'll feel like you're actually doing magic. So, great. It was a D6 and D20 system. And then it came time to publish it, and they were looking for a supplier to get their D20s. And they only sold it, this educational supply store, only sold them in batches of all five dice, of fours, eights, tens, twelves, twenties. That's six dice. (laughs) Whatever. It's fine. (laughs) It's not a math podcast. (laughs) So they had to buy these in batches. And they were figuring out, okay, we'll just pull out the D20 and the D6. And they're like, no, that's a lot of work. Let's rewrite the rules to incorporate all these other dice so we can just include the full bundle. And that's how the history was made. It was because of a production quirk that the D&D rules incorporated all of these different sides of dice. And then they invented pencils. Right. So we need to learn from them. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a lot of gold there. I mean, this is the antithesis of what we're trying to do, right? Like, (laughs) Like bring out something that barely exists in the world and make it so only the most dedicated of players could find the right objects unless we sell it to them. 
It's a good business model. Yeah, I'm if having second you... thoughts. As soon as I said that, I was like, hmm. <laughs> if you can see into the future and guarantee the popularity of your game, it's a good business model. Right. It really does rely on your game being a breakout hit. The new um, like Legend of the Five Rings game does that, right? They have, you know, unique dice that are required to play the game and you have to buy it from them. And it's part of an existing system that they've used before. So are the, mm-hmm. they're the people, I mean, that's also part of sort of getting a certain type of dedicated fan, like a fan who has bought in to the system that is weird and now sort of follows from game to game because they feel like they, you know, they're like, I know that I already have those pieces. Skeptical? So, well, no, I agree. <laughs> and that's not something we have yet. It's not something I want. Right. It, you know, even if you have enough fans to support it, you're still making it harder on the people who aren't willing to invest. Which is interesting because, I mean, a board game, a lot of board games are going to assume that the pieces that come in that box are not somehow, like, universally compatible. Right. So I'm not sure with role-playing games why why then I'm so attached to this idea of, like, the book will get you by. Everything else you can make or get, you know, pull from something that you probably have around. Because, like, board games don't assume that. I think it's because you're a junk poet at heart. I am such a junk poet. (laughs) (laughs) These these stuffy capitalistic world weavers that we've Mm -hmm. left behind. Well, we don't want to be uh, stuff sellers. It's just not the job we're interested in. It's true. It does become sort of another, it becomes another level of your job is now the production of these unique elements. It's interesting because we've, With each Kickstarter, we've also taken that job on to some extent in offering special versions of the games that include all the dice and dice bags and cork boards and all that. That's never been the most fun part. (laughs) No. But interestingly, that's been to increase the accessibility of the game. You know, to say that, like, probably you have these pieces around, but also if you want, you can buy the really cool looking box of Dan the Man Save the Music and get a custom back deck of cards um, and like, yeah, you have these pieces, but like, here you go. Now you can just take it all to the table. You don't have to wrangle up your supplies. It's also a benefit of using Kickstarter is that we can basically take pre-orders for exactly that kind of production. Because if we were just selling, if we we're just going to bring stuff to a con and just produce it completely on our own money, adding all the tools and parts would be too much. And we've even found this outside of Kickstarter. I mean, you know, for example, for Noirlandia, it requires some special pieces. Mm-hmm. They're things like cork boards and string and thumbtacks, which you can get at any office supply store. But we sold these kits with them. Um, and they sold really well during the Kickstarter. And now we have a few left. And it's been hard to figure out what to do with them. They've kind of they've just been sitting around in a closet for a year because it's like past the initial enthusiasm of the campaign. These special kits don't really have the same like nobody really wants them (laughs) yeah well they weren't really built to be sold at a table you know they're built to be sent so it's hard to sell a cardboard box (laughs) (laughs) maybe we should like raffle them off as part of this podcast yeah stay tuned for information about a different game and get another game Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> think about that for the next okay, episode. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm not <laughs> really sure how to make that at all relevant. But we do have them just sitting, sitting in a closet. So what tools do we want to have at the table for the sequel? All right, well, I'll start with the obvious, but maybe not obvious. Maybe nothing is obvious. Maybe obvious is just an assumption. <laughs> it's just a state of mind. <laughs> what does that even mean? Um, but I'll say the core rule book. Yeah. But that's not necessarily obvious because a role-playing game could be broken up into like five small books that are all needed to play. Or the idea that you just have a group. It's a simple enough system that you don't need to have the rule book there at the table. That's not going to be the case. <laughs> the rule book's hovering above you by a string. Mm -hmm. And there's sort of this like Russian roulette. Yeah. You sort of, you know, give it a push and you have to keep your face very still. <laughs> We're going to be talking about tools that hover above you on a string, actually. But that's spoilers. We're not there. We'll be there in a minute. Um, so I'm going to say the core rule book will be something that this game has. Mm -hmm. But our our current plan is for that to not be the only book that Questlandia sequel will have. Right. The plan is to have the journals, the places where you're recording the details of the worlds that you explore, and that can then be used in future worlds based on how you fill them out. And I think that there's maybe some hope that the journals can also contain your character sheet, some oracle tables, some of the games, you know, quick reference rules. Right. That it'll be this place for, like, all of the table clutter. But not all of it. I have a feeling this is going to be a game with a lot of table clutter, which I like. A big table I game. really, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I like, like, paper all over the table. I think it's weird and fun and messy i mean that's on theme for us like if we're talking about the world builders library wrestling. what <laughs> wait <laughs> i don't know paper all over the table intellectual mud wrestling uh, it's like okay, dirty but everybody's with paper. just covered with paper, paper. <laughs> <laughs> everybody's got pencil marks and ink on their fingers hot <laughs> the as a game that takes place in a library and is about filling out these books, having a table strewn with papers is on point. It can also be a little stressful, though, like if you have to find a certain piece of paper in a pinch. So, you know, want to find that mud wrestling balance. Right. <laughs> we want to have dice. We want to have cards. Uh, those both feel like, you know, part of what Questlandia is bringing forward and just really nice objects to have at the table. It's not yet clear exactly what purpose they'll use, but they're kind of our randomizer of choice. Yeah, we like the dice. We like the cards. Are they going to be a normal set of cards or are these going to be cards specially created for Questlandia? Question mark. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we're probably going to start off at least with a regular deck of cards in our first play tests, but... This could be a game where we expand past that. Like it uses six-sided dice, but each die face just has a one on it. Mm -hmm. And a 52 deck of cards, but like only one card is different. Yeah. Yeah. The mud wrestle card. Yeah. <laughs> All play stops. <laughs> All papers are strewn throughout the floor. Things get sexy. <laughs> 
we're definitely keeping a map. Probably a bunch of maps. <laughs> yeah, I think one of the best parts of our sort of pre-playtest that we did for the sequel were that we had multiple maps. And they were awesome because we ended up consulting them as players and then our characters referenced them too. Yeah, they were a great connection with the worlds. They were really fun to make and they made great reference material like when we were researching this episode and looking back on how that campaign went. It was really cool to see those old maps. So, Plum Bobs. This started during one of our early play, well, not play, one of our early brainstorms for, for Questlandia 2. Yes. So we were sort of thinking about some of the weirder tools that an RPG could use. And we were killing time by watching a YouTube tutorial on how to build a fence. For no reason. We had, <laughs> there are no fences in our lives that needed to be built. We were just searching for the mundane. So we watched this video on YouTube of how to build a fence. I think we watched a number of them. We got really into it. Mm -hmm. And then it led us down this YouTube vortex. As you do. As you do. Where one of the fence building videos used something called a plumb bob. And we were like, what's a plumb bob? That's funny. We like this word. <laughs> so then we went <laughs> and watched YouTube videos about plumb bobs. And then we looked up Wikipedia articles about plumb bobs. And then we looked at the Wikipedia edit history of plumb bob articles <laughs> and the arguments between the plumb bob experts. Yeah, we found this like contentious history in the Wikipedia edits about plumb bobs. Uh, so a plumb bob... What's a plumb bob? A plumb bob is a weight hanging from a string with some ability to mark the floor beneath it. You hang this from something. You mark where it hits the floor. You mark a little X with it. And now you know the exact point exactly beneath whatever you hung it from. It lets you pinpoint a perfectly vertical column between any higher up point. And it can be as simple as, you know, hanging a pen from a string. But in history, people have made some very beautiful ones. And this this idea of like, you know, plumb bobs finding this vertical center has also had some overlap in history with divination and dousing and, you know, like the dactylomancy that we mentioned in the intro to the episode. This idea of an object being pulled by gravity that exerts some supernatural will on mm -hmm. the objects around it. So if, for example, it was a plumb bob, you know, you'd maybe have this table surrounded by letters or characters. And as you swing it before the plumb bob finds its vertical center, it will touch on, you know, I don't know, the next character who's going to die in this game or the mm -hmm. character who's going to become the empress. So it can hop around a ring of symbols like the ring from the intro or characters on the Golden Compass from the Golden Compass series. <laughs> so does a plumb bob have a place in Questlandia? I don't know. It is a simple, beautiful, kind of arcane object. And there's something that is really attractive in that to us. It was thinking about the plumb bob and what it would be like to make a system around it that actually led 
to a huge amount of our conversations about what this game will be like to play. And at this point, maybe we're leaving that behind. Maybe we'll put it into a playtest and just try it and just get a sense of it. But it's a example of a tool that is brought on so early in the process of making a game that it can influence the whole game design to warp around it. Something that's been attractive about the plumbob is also that it represents a sort of ritual object. And one thing that we're talking a lot about in this redesign is the idea of uh, role-playing games as rituals and the rituals that you have in opening a game and closing a game. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of like there's a lot of these rituals. I mean, teaching the rules or reminding of the rules, or some people will do a session, you know, at the beginning of the session, they'll all talk about what happened in the story last time and do a recap. Like those are all rituals. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to find more and more ways to incorporate those rituals directly into the immersion of play. Uh, so plumbobs. <laughs> there still seems to be something special about the idea of pausing the play to swing your plumbob. <laughs> Why? Because it's funny mm-hmm. and fun. So when we're thinking about incorporating stranger tools into the game, we want to look at tools that are immersion building, that fit with the themes of it. And so we've been thinking about the books and the library and, you know, what kind of tools can you use that make you feel like you're interacting with these books? So that brings up ideas like special pens or pencils, maybe special colors, where when you write with that pen, it has a unique way of changing the rules of the world you're making. The pen of blood, the pen of dirt, the pen of... Mud wrestling. Justice. (laughs) (laughs) We also thought about mechanizing bookmarks. So ways that you're marking the pages that you'll be returning to as you explore this world. It might be oracles or, you know, just special randomizing tables that are relevant to the world you're exploring. But because of the bookmark you use to mark that page, that changes what the things on that page do. So the rules are impacted by these special ribbons or uh, slips that both keep your page and serve a useful purpose, but also give you more ways to personalize the worlds you're exploring. And one of the big questions that we've been going back and forth about since the beginning of talking about this sequel is what type of native support we hope to offer as part of the game in terms of digital tools, because we want people to have these easy ways of sharing their Questlandia worlds. We want this game to feel like it is encouraging a lively, connected, uh, not isolated player base of people who are, you know, like... Questlandia communities. And so one way to foster that is to give people digital tools for sharing their work. But if we want to be consistent with this idea of the tools that we provide being relevant in the game, then we want this to be like the digital archive of the junk poets as they're, you know, like archiving these paper pieces that the world weavers created. But digital stuff is hard because it's so changeable. Mm-hmm. It's e- ephemeral. It That's- is. It does feel like it could be fitting, the junk poets scrappily putting together these digital devices to record their experiences and share them and get input. 
Plus, you're a web designer, so... Yeah, well, <laughs> in a past life. Uh, you know, we've already had one suggestion about the game using archive.org um, and, you know, uploading to archive.org because it both serves the library metaphor, it's like a valuable resource that's available for free, it's probably not going anywhere anytime soon, and it's weird. Like, it's a weird place to put random game components. Yeah. So, you know, keep thinking about that. I think that part of the goal is that you're making these journals and these maps that you'll be proud enough that you'll want to be sharing. So figuring out a good way for people to do that over distances is a completely worthwhile endeavor. We'll see if we can figure <laughs> it out. So those are some of the things that we're thinking about in terms of the toolkit that we want to provide for Questlandia, the sequel. In our next episode, we are going to be talking about planning for the first playtest. Yeah. <laughs> Exciting. So after we finish recording this, we're going to hit the calendar and get a playtest on the schedule for maybe three weeks out. And in our next episode, we will be frantically trying to make an actual playable version of this game to bring to that play test. I hope you're as excited as we are or more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So our next episode will focus on some of these, you know, first draft of the rules and which rules we're going to be discarding and which rules we've edited for this, you know, alpha, alpha sequel run. Mm -hmm. So we're looking forward to bringing you on board for the next part of the process. Your thoughts and questions. Last week, we attended PAX Unplugged in Philadelphia, which is the uh, PAX's new convention celebrating board games and tabletop. No video game stuff. Right. Um, it was really fun. We had a great time. We attended as part of the Indie Bazaar, which is this loosely affiliated group of designers who self-publish their own work. We've been going as part of the Indie Bazaar to PAX East in Boston for a number of years, and we had a great, a great year. Yeah, it was a really, really fun convention. And one of the great things about PAX in Philly last weekend was how many people came up and said nice things about this podcast. That was really cool. <laughs> it yeah. was awesome. <laughs> um, there were people who bought Questlandia who had heard about the game through the podcast, so that's cool. I hope it works out for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're not apologizing for it at this point. So that was really cool, and it felt really good. So thank you for everybody who took the time to stop by the Indie Bazaar and say hi and say that you like the podcast because we're having a really good time, and that meant a lot. Um, and as a result, we are also now sold out of Questlandia. Which is awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So if you've been waiting to pick up a copy, you will have to keep waiting. Uh, we're going to be doing, I think, one more print run of the game before, you know, coming out with the sequel. Mm -hmm. And then I think there are these questions moving forward into the future of, like, do we want to keep publishing the original? Yeah, it'll, it'll depend on the people. Yeah, we'll see. If you have any questions or thoughts about the episode, you can email us at designdocpod at gmail.com or follow us and tweet to us at designdocpod on Twitter.
You can also follow us personally on Twitter. I am Han Bandit. And I'm A Drawn Novel. The Design Doc intro and outro theme was created by our friend and musician, Pat King. Thanks, Pat. The Design Doc podcast is hosted by the OneShot Podcast Network. If you enjoyed Design Doc, visit oneshotpodcast.com, where you'll find other great shows like Neoscum. Neoscum is a future fantasy comedy podcast featuring five Chicago improvisers antagonizing their way through the role-playing classic Shadowrun. It follows a group of misfits and outsiders, a chromehead decker, a teenage candy junkie klepto, a kids show wizard with a petulant thirst for adventure, and the nastiest trucker this side of the robo Mason Dixon. Join the irascible neo-scum crew as they dole out street justice to every deeb they encounter, whether they deserve it or not. Irascible? Sounds good. Is that a real word that I said? I think so. All right. If you're liking what we do here... Why not hop over to Design Doc on iTunes and leave us a review? It'll help more people find the show, and it will fill us with determination. Determination. <laughs> uh, my sister is also doing this thing where she is reading us the reviews in the voice of Wallace Shawn. So. I'm not we, sure why. We should really be recording her, actually. So maybe that is something that we can do for, like, the Patreon level, is, like, yeah. having Alana <laughs> read good and bad reviews of Questlandia in the voice of Wallace Shawn from The Princess Bride. So if you leave us a review, we will be so shocked as to find it inconceivable. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you soon, heroes. <laughs>